Hello Blazers, welcome to episode 107 of UAB Green and Told, original debut Monday, September 25th, 2023. This podcast gives us a chance to share stories from members of the UAB community. Check out all of our previous episodes by visiting alumni.uab.edu slash greenandtold, Spotify, or the Apple Podcasts app. While there, leave a written review so more alums can listen in. I'm Greg Berry, a UAB alum and Director of Communications in the Office of Alumni Affairs. Someone once said, Southerners love a good tale. They are born reciters, great memory retainers, diary keepers, letter exchangers, and great talkers. Let's face it, Southerners can sure share a story. When you meet someone who is great at passing along an anecdote, you find yourself enthralled with what's being said, hanging on every word. By trade, today's guest is a doctor, a cardiologist, in fact. Dr. Douglas Lyle has a passion for his craft, but his heart initially fell in love with storytelling. I always wanted to tell stories. I always tell people, you grow up in the South, if you can't tell a story, they won't feed you. You know, they'll just put you behind a barn and let you die somewhere. You know, because everybody <laughs> can tell a story in the South and usually tell it very well. And as he'll share, putting pen to paper or tapping keys at a computer, as you compose what you hope is something that is riveting and entertaining, isn't exactly the easiest thing to accomplish. My first book was 138,000 words. It's probably the greatest book ever written on the planet of the earth by any human being. I sent it to my agent before she was my agent. She called me a week later and she said, there's a story in here somewhere. I just can't find it. One after another, the stories would come, but for Dr. Lyle, not in the genre you'd probably think. The wheelhouse would be medical thrillers or medical dramas or something Mm -hmm. like that, but that's been done. Turns out that it's always the the ne'er-do-well guy with issues fighting the big establishment. That's kind of what it comes down to all the time. The ability to share stories is a gift not everybody shares. When you're good at it, you can find yourself across from someone hanging on your every word. Dr. Douglas Lyle has that gift. While he's living in California now, this Huntsville, Alabama native has always had a creative and curious mind. I always liked learning stuff. Just tell me something new. As as far as medicine is concerned, I not only knew that I was going to go to medical school, I knew I was going to go into cardiology. About 10 years old, we watched a documentary on TV about the first blue baby surgery, which we n- I now know it's the Blaylock-Talzig procedure, but at that time, it was the first blue baby surgery done up at John Hopkins. And I remember we watched it on TV, and I told my dad, I said, that's what I'm going to do. I wanted to do it. I don't know why I couldn't. You know, I never realized, which was kind of stupid on my part, that there was a competition to get into medical school. Mm-hmm. I mean, I showed up the first day with some very smart people. In fact, the smartest human I ever knew I went to school with in the third grade on. And uh, that he showed up in class that I'm thinking. And then I started hearing stories of people that had tried two, three, four times to get into medical school. And it's like, really? I just kind of set a bar. And I said, if you do this, then you deserve it. But I never asked anybody. I just said, that makes sense to me. Why UAB at that point? Well, uh, I was... Uh, you know, I, I was at the University of Alabama over in T-Town, and uh, that's where I got my, my undergraduate degree in chemistry. Uh, I looked at, 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 at really three places when I was looking at medical schools, and, and there was Harvard, of course, and Vanderbilt, and, uh, and Birmingham. Uh, Harvard was too, too far away. I wasn't going to go up there. I just did that on a lark. Uh, Vanderbilt, I was interested in, but the, I, I needed a scholarship to do that, which I, I didn't get. Uh, and my parents couldn't afford to send me to Vanderbilt. I mean, my God, you know, yeah. <laughs> it, it co- a year costs more than the house. So, um, 
you know, I ended up in Birmingham, which was, which was the, the place to be anyway, and especially for cardiology. I mean, it was the place to be. And at that time, it's not the UAB that it is today. What no. was it like from the School of Medicine side of things? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the medical school was a tiny little thing with the anatomy lab on top, and it was right next to the old Hillman, and, and the old Hillman and the VA were the two hospitals. And we had a children's hospital was a few blocks away, but basically the medical center was the old Hillman and, uh, and, and the VA, and that was pretty much it. We had a relationship with Caraway Methodist, so we would go over there as junior and senior students and, and, and do some rotations over there. But basically, it was the old Hillman. And uh, I mean, that's such a special place. Um, and I look back now with the places I've been, there's there, uh, you know, there's University of Texas at Houston, Texas Heart Institute. I worked at Cedar sinai a little while. I spent a few months up at Mass General as a senior student. But of all the medical centers I went to, Birmingham was by far the best. Why? They did all three things well. They did teaching, they did research, they did patient care, and they did it perfectly, as well as it can be done. And I think the reason was is that the staff there were the staff. They weren't private docs, just happened to show up to teach. They were committed and dedicated. And then I think, you know, God rest his soul, Tinsley Harrison had so much to do with that, you know, and we had a very special relationship one of the greatest humans I've ever known, besides the greatest physician I've ever known. You wound up in California. Yeah. At what point did you end up in the Golden State, and what led you there? You know, it, it, that's interesting, and, and I'll, I'll go back. When I did uh, my senior year of medical school, I went up to, to the Mass General for a couple of months, and there was a surgical resident there who was doing a rota rotation in cardiology, and which was kind of odd that a surgical resident would do that. But he said, you know, I need to know, because this is how people die. You know, they die a cardiac death, and I need to know arrhythmias. And you all that. well, by the time I was a senior student, I'd been doing research in, in cardiovascular medicine with Eddie Edelman and Tinsley Harrison and Joe Reeves and that, and, and had worked on some computer programs back in the early days of that and a Harvard yeah. program, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I taught him a lot of cardiology. And I taught him a lot about EKGs and rhythms and all that stuff. And so we just became friends. We'd run it. Well, he, his brother had the year before graduated number one in his class from Harvard Law School. And his brother said that at the meeting, the little uh, thing they had after the graduation, they had a little uh, a cocktail party. And he was sitting with Justice Byron White. And he asked him, he said, look, here I am. I'm graduating number one in the class. And everybody tells me I can go and do anything that I want to do anything at all what's your advice because you're at the apex of our profession what, what do you advise and the guy, he said find a community he said find a place you want to live he said because whether if you're doing legal work for u.s senators or farmers the work in the office is the same it's when you walk out the door well i visited a dear friend of mine also from huntsville <laughs> uh, i came and visited him and in, uh, in orange county in, in newport beach and i looked around and i said this is where i want to live and so that's how it happened Obviously, Orange County is just an amazing area of the yep. country, but what drew you in to that? Everybody knows it's beautiful, you know, it's pretty, mm -hmm. it's got great weather, but what was it for you? It, the weather was a lot of it, and then just the terrain. I mean, all, all the this little towns along the ocean, uh, the, a lot of them are evaporating now. They're being modernized, but Newport Beach and uh, Laguna Beach and Dana Point. And, and I just I just liked the lifestyle. It was more relaxed. It was uh, people didn't wear ties to the <laughs> 
<laughs> stuff like that. But uh, I don't know. It was just the whole, it was excitement. It was new. It was, uh, it was California. You know, it had a lot of things, you know, it's obviously evolved since I moved here in 1976. It's, it's not so golden anymore, but uh, it sure was back then. My dad spent 40 years as a firefighter, and when he would sit down, he'd watch TV, he'd see firefighters on TV, because that's not the way it's done. Yeah. Did you find yourself watching medical shows and going, wait a minute, they're not doing this right? Sure. Um, yeah, you do that. But then, you know, later when I became a writer and started writing my own fiction, I'm a lot more tolerant uh, because there's storytelling involved and you can't get too deep in the weeds because then you bore the, the watcher or the reader to death because they don't care about the stuff you care about. What they care about is a story. <laughs> you know? And so you kind of give them a pass on some of this stuff. But yeah, you see things that are so egregiously wrong. You say, come on, come on. All you got to do is Google something. You, know? <laughs> you can figure that out or go to the library. You know? You're in the shadow of Hollywood, the mecca of movie stars, TV shows, all of this stuff. At what point did you kind of decide to go out on a limb and, and start writing and doing different things outside of the daily work of, of working on yeah. arts? Well, I always... Even through medical school, I had friends that weren't in medicine. And I, I jealously guarded that because, you know, when you go to medical school and you go through all your training, you're really removed from society for a decade or more. Sure. You're not part of society. You're not. You're not. You're in a bubble. You're in a cocoon. You're in a medical center. You're living with people that are, that are doing the same stuff you're doing, worried about the same things you're worried about, and you're exhausted because you're working all the time, so you don't have time to go do anything. But it really takes you out of the mainstream world. But I always had friends outside of medicine, and uh, and I think that helps. Um, I always wanted to tell stories. I always tell people, you grow up in the South, if you can't tell a story, they won't feed you. You know, they'll just put you behind a barn and let you die somewhere. You know, because everybody <laughs> can tell a story in the South and usually tell it very well. And I always wanted to write stories. But I guess it's been 25 years or so ago now I decided, you know, when I retire, you know, I have these stories I want to tell. And, and then I thought about 20 years, I said, well, well, it, I'm not going to retire anytime soon. So if not now, when? So I took some night classes at University of California, Irvine, a couple of classes. I joined a couple of writing groups and just started writing. And uh, one of the smartest things I ever did, because it's a great outlet, and I really, really have fun with it. When you first put pen to paper and you wrote the first story, that became something. Do you mm -hmm. remember what it was and kind of the process of getting to the end? Sure, it was hard. I mean, it's a grind. Uh, it's one thing to tell a story. It's another thing to write a story. You got to put what's in your head into words and not just speaking to somebody where you have feedback. You see their facial expressions. You see if they got a question and you can, you know, but if you're by, you're by yourself, you're in a dark room, you know, killing people you know? Yeah. <laughs> and you're, and you're writing all this stuff. You have absolutely no feedback. And, and my first book was 138,000 words. It's probably the greatest book ever written on the planet of the earth by any human being. I sent it to my agent before she was my agent. She's my been my only agent since I started publishing stuff. And I sent it to Kimberly and she called me a week later and she said, there's a story in here somewhere. I just can't find it. <laughs> and I okay. said, well, that, that's what I needed to know. And she said, I hate to be so blunt, you know? And I said, look, Kimberly, I went to medical school. This is nothing. <laughs> you know, this is nothing. And I, so I, to make a long story short, 
over 10 years and I published other stuff along the way, but I wouldn't let that story go. It got uh, a change of location four times, a change of uh, title four times. It got a change of protagonist and it was rewritten 27 times. Oh, wow. And the only thing that stayed the same was the bad guy and the basic story. But 10 years later, we've published it and it was my first dub walker book that's set in huntsville called stress fracture but that's a that was a 10-year process to, to get that book and a lot of work but you know you get better at it and you you get more consistent and more concise and you know how to tell the story better but the first time oh man you overwrite everything it's awful it's awful <laughs> yeah what genre are you focusing on thrillers yeah, but I have one series now that are comedic thrillers. There are a lot more comedy involved, and uh, and I, I really enjoy that series. It's my Jake Longley series, and Jake's a goofball, and so it's kind of fun. It's set in Gulf Shores, actually, in and around though. Jake moves around and goes different places. Do you find yourself drawing from your personal life with these stories? You mentioned Huntsville. You mentioned Gulf Shores. I'm sure you've been there many times, <laughs> but you grew up in Huntsville, so you know the area. So how how do you approach that? Well, it's interesting. When I started, decided to set my Dub Walker series there, remember, I hadn't lived in Huntsville in 40 years. True. Different city. But I had a lot of friends there, and so I, and my parents still lived there, so I would go back there and visit. So I kind of knew, I kind of knew what it was, but you know, there were places that were still there, you know? Montesano Mountain is not ever going to change. It's just so wonderful. It's one of my childhood treasures is the drives over Montesano Mountain. Me and the boys go up there and solve the world's lives as we drove back, all the problems as we drove backwards and forth across the mountain. We all did that. But the city in and of itself was still small, but yet it was much bigger and so much more going on. Uh, and so much had changed, but yet basically it was the same. But I needed to know all that. And so I spent time there, you know, doing that. I went and spent a day with the forensic science people there and, and all that stuff, you know. You mentioned a couple of your characters and Jake and Dub. With everybody that you've written about, all of these different characters, who's the favorite character for you? Boy, that's hard. Uh, the two that I'm working on now, the Jake Longley, the comedic series, and then the Kane Harper, which is darker and uh, uh, more thrillerish. But I probably go back to Samantha Cody. I wrote three books in the Samantha Cody series, and I just love Sam. She's an ex-cop and, and for a while was a professional boxer. And, and Sam was a little strawberry blonde that you didn't want to mess with. She'd knock you out. you know. And But her stories had a little woo-woo to them. It was a little metaphysical undertones so at the end of the story you kind of say is that what really happened you know so i had a little fun. i had fun with sam but i love them all i mean it, they're all it's like you know your kids how do you how do you decide which one's your favorite <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah 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 how does a story kind of come together because here you are you start with character now the first one took 10 years and, and an entire yeah. process but since then as you've refined your own process how has it changed and how do you develop a story? Do you know the ending when you begin? No, I used to, I, I used to outline. Okay. And I found I would spend weeks outlining a book. And so I would write, you know, a paragraph about what each chapter, each scene was going to be about. And I'd get about three quarters of the way through it and I get bored with it because now I know the story and I know how it's going to end. So then I just start writing and then obviously end up changing my outline as I go along. Well, starting with uh, the first Jake book uh, a few years ago, I said, you know, I got this scene in mind. 
and it's the opening scene of the first Jake book called Deep Six. I said, I got this scene in mind. I have no idea where this is going. I don't know what's going to happen after this. Just write the scene, see what happens. And it just unfolded. One scene, next scene, next scene, next scene. The story just evolved. So that's the way I write now. I just have an idea, a concept for something and just start writing. See where it goes. I just know the good guys are going to win. The bad guys are going to lose. But I have no idea when, where, and how. I don't even know who all the bad guys are when I start. I just kind of have this vague idea for where this story is going to go and, you know, and kind of what's it, what it going to, what is it going to be about? You know, what, what's going to be the log line, if you will, what if, you know, um, and then just let it flow from there. Why thrillers, you know, of everything you could write about, you can write medical dramas, you can do other things. Mm-hmm. Why thrillers? Now, you know, I, obviously the wheelhouse would be medical thrillers or medical dramas or something mm-hmm. like that, but that's been done. Turns out that it's always the the ne'er do well guy with issues fighting the big establishment. That's kind of what it comes down to all the time. So I just want to write about ordinary people who get stuck in extraordinary circumstances, and then what happens? How do they get out of it? You know, kind of like life, just roll on. If I'm not mistaken, there's a nonfiction book out there. This, you know, probably came during the heyday of all of this genre of books. It was the dummies books. You know, it oh, was yeah. you wrote forensics for dummies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Why? <laughs> What's behind that one? Oh, man, that's that's wild. Um, as a physician, if you go to a cocktail party, people want to talk about their cholesterol and their gallbladder. Sure. You know, I'm asking for a friend. Yeah, okay. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if you go, if you're a writer and you go to a writer's conference, they find out you're a physician, they want to know about gunshot wounds and poisons and what dead bodies look like and, you know, and all that stuff. So I had to read up on that stuff. And then writers started sending me questions and I started filling their questions and answering them. And I found out that I had to go research forensic science. And I found out it was actually very easy because it's the same science. It's exactly the same science. Sure. You know, whether you're talking about, you know, forensic pathology or clinical pathology, it's the same pathology. You know, you've got clinical pharmacology and you've got forensic toxicology, same science, same drugs, same, same tests, same everything. So the science already knew. It was just a matter of looking at it a little differently and see how law enforcement and how crime labs use this stuff and what testing they do and how they interpret it and how it informs the the solution of a crime. But that was the easy part because I already knew the science. I knew the vocabulary, number one. Which is, so I started, I looked at my role as to help crime writers understand what was going on explain it to them in in common sense language you know and i'm from alabama so i only know six words you know (laughs) i always tell and so i can explain it in simple terms and then uh, tell them how to use this stuff in their story and that's how it started then one day we were out in palm springs i was signing a book and it was like 115 degrees and nobody came in the store nobody walked by the store nobody drove by the store there was nan and i and the two staff members (laughs) and absolutely nothing happened because well it was palm springs 115 degrees stupid me so they had a rack of dummies books and i said huh i wonder if they got forensics for dummies and i didn't see it and that night i got home it was a saturday and and i looked online at the wiley thing and they didn't have it listed as one of their four dummies titles 
So I called my agent Monday morning. I said, Kimberly, I got a great idea. And her response was, what is it now? <laughs> because I always had great ideas. And she, I said, forensics for dummies. And she said, that is a great idea. And you should write it. I said, of course I should. I said, do you know anybody at Wiley? She said, I'll research it. I said, I tell you what, Book Expo is in LA next weekend and I'm going. Why don't I just go to the Wiley booth and find the person and talk to them directly? Yeah. She said, that's a great idea. So make a long story short, I went to the Wiley thing and I walked, I said, who's, who, who does the dummies books? And they pointed to this lady right over there, Diane Steele. I said, well, I need to talk to her. So I go over there and she's chatting with somebody else. I stand back and wait. She finishes and I walk up to her and introduce myself and I hand her a card. And the card was for my first question and answer book where I took all those questions and put them into books. I've got three of them, but this is the first one. It's called Murder and Mayhem. And I handed her the card and she looked at it and she said, did you write this? And I said, yes. Yeah. She said, I have this. I love this book. I no said, well, kidding. thank you. And she said, you know, we're thinking about doing forensics for dummies. I said, that's what I want to talk to you about. She said, well, I don't think we have an author attached to that yet. I said, you do now. At this yeah. time, were you were you consulting for TV shows and stuff like yes, that too? Yes, I was doing some of that. Yes. How does one get into that? I mean, do people approach you and and say, look, Doc, I want you as a part of my series, or how does that well, play out? Because at writers' conferences, I meet writers, okay. and some of them are screenwriters. And right. uh, Lee Goldberg and Matt Witten, probably more than anybody, Paul Guyo, and a few others. And Lee did, uh, <laughs> I always kid him, he even did Baywatch for a while. But Lee did uh, Diagnosis Murder. He, he, he was the showrunner for that. He did uh, the Monk, many of the Monk books, okay. the Diagnosis Murder books. He wrote with Janet Ivanovich, and he writes on his own. I mean, he, he's so prolific. But Lee would contact me and we would talk about plots and how to help him with the science and the medical and forensic science of stories. So if you look at the monk books, I'm basically acknowledged in every one of them. And uh, most of the diagnosis murder books, because I helped Lee with those. So that's how it started. And then word of mouth, and then people would contact you and say, you know, we're doing this TV series and we have this and we have that, you know, and we need to know that. Sure. Fine. You're still practicing, correct? Yes. Yes. What keeps you going? Why not? What else am I going to do? Write more. I do. Yeah, I got lots of time. I, I got more time to write than I know what to do with. You know, I don't sleep much, so there's that. But uh, um, yeah, I, I have plenty of time to do that. That's that's not. I, I try to write two books a year, and that's enough. You know, I don't want to make this a job. That's yeah. the one thing I promised myself when I started. Is this is going to become a job? You know, this is going to be fun. And when it's not fun, I'm going to do something else. You know, but. I kind of felt that way about medicine too, but you know, I, it is what it is. I, I, I love that. It's, it's fun. I don't go to the hospital. I don't take night call or that stuff anymore. So that helps a lot. So I just go to the office and see patients a day a week. And that's about it. Where are you and your characters going in the next few years? Where are you going to be? I have no idea. You know, I'm working on, I think the seventh, the Jake book right now. And I've started the fourth Kane Harper book. You know, I'll, I'll work on those. I'll come up with another character. I, you know, I, I may want to start writing more short stories. Um, I've been lucky. I mean, everything I've ever written, short story or, or long fiction, everything I've ever written has been published. You know, so, I mean, that, that helps, you know. But um, I don't know. I don't know. I can't imagine not doing it.
That's Dr. Douglas Lyle, or D.P. Lyle. Dr. Lyle earned his MD from the Hearsing School of Medicine in 1972. Today, he is an award-winning author while hosting the crime fiction writer's blog and a podcast series. With a diverse background and career tied to his passion for UAB's medical program, D.P. definitely has great idea of what it means to be a blazer. My time in Birmingham uh, doing research with Dr. Harrison, uh, going to my medical school and my internship and the old Hillman Hospital. I mean, I cannot put enough emphasis on that old hospital. That place was so special. And all of that really is where I cut my teeth in medicine. And again, I think because of the faculty and the staff there that were full-time and definitely because of Tinsley Harrison, all of us in that generation learned medicine the right way. And that's really the heart and soul of everything I've done in medicine my entire career is what I learned inside UAB there. I know there was something special about those years and there was something special about the people that mentored us and trained us and taught us and particularly Dr. Harrison, that this is how you think about things. This is how you solve problems. This is how you support things. And, and, and this is how you do it. And I think we all learn very, very, very valuable lessons. Be sure to check out past episodes of the UAB Green and Told podcast. Listen in at alumni.uab.edu slash greenandtold. Have a story to share or know someone who does? Email greenandtold at uab.edu. Finally, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search UAB alumni on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening. And until next time, go Blazers.